Well, I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2, another familiar passage as we are um, celebrating this Advent season. Last week, as we were in Luke chapter 2, we read probably the most familiar passage relating to the Nativity. Now let's read about this journey from the East. Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1. We'll read the first 12 verses together. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the inspiration that you gave to Matthew as he held the pen that wrote these words. And Father, as we, as we consider them today, may we understand exactly what you need for us to see. And Father, may we do more than understand. May we be changed in response to your word. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, we just sang a brand new song about following Christ, though the journey may be long and arduous, as well as a well-known Christmas carol from the 19th century about the long, arduous journey we see in Matthew 12, in which wise men from the east traveled to Judea to find the fulfillment of ancient prophecies. We Three Kings was written in 1857 by Reverend John Henry Hopkins. John Henry Hopkins, Jr., his father was also a pastor, but he didn't write the hymn. It was published in 1863, same year as the Battle of Gettysburg, while Hopkins was rector of Christ Episcopal Church in Williamsport, PA, about 100 miles north of there. 
Much of what most of us identify with the Magi who came to see Jesus comes from folklore and tradition rather than Scripture. And Hopkins takes the same liberties with this song. The only record we have of this event is from Matthew's account. And he doesn't refer to them as kings, nor does he indicate how many there were, or specifically where they came from. They also clearly did not arrive for Christ's birth in a stable, as we so often see in our nativity scenes. But much later, after Joseph had established a home for them. Nonetheless, We Three Kings overflows with Christological content in its verses. And it echoes our core reality for today. That core reality is this. God's King will be recognized by all who earnestly seek truth. Let me say it again. It's up for you on the screen. You want to make sure that you know this, because if you forget everything else I say today, you want to walk away with this reality. God's King will be recognized by all who earnestly seek truth. Now, in the verses of this song, Hopkins cites the gifts brought by the Magi to highlight the very roles of Christ revealed in the Gospels, as Shelley alluded to earlier, as she was working so hard to steal my introduction. So uh, as we are considering this today, allow me to read the text of just those content-rich verses. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. This was the promise God made to David, that one from his line, one who would come through Bethlehem, would forever reign on his throne, God's perfect king. The verses continue, Frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh. Now, some of you, especially the younger folks among us, are looking at that saying, what the heck does that mean? This incense is for worship. And it's taking hold, it's grasping the reality that God is near. Frankincense gives us that picture of worship. Incense owns a deity nigh. Prayer and praising, all men raising, worship Him, God Most High. This is the Christ child that they worshipped. Born in that humble place, laid in, a, in an animal feeder, in total obscurity, and yet God most high. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume breathes of life, of gathering gloom. Myrrh was used in the burial spices as they would prepare bodies for burial. This this pungent aroma from the myrrh was part of that, part of their embalming process. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume breathes of life of gathering gloom. We don't think about that part of the nativity scene. We don't think of that part of the advent of the Christmas nearly enough. As we celebrate with presents and feasts and trees and all of the things that we do, 
We focus so much on the joy. And yet, this gift represents the beginning of a funeral. Christ came to die. To die in our place. Praise God, He came also to rise again. Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. Thankfully, Hopkins does not end there. He finishes with this verse, Glorious now, behold Him arise, King and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, earth to heaven replies. This is the glory of Christmas. Do you realize that the glory of Christmas is Easter? It's that we get to know that Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, did not stay a baby. Right? So forget about Ricky Bobby's prayer to baby Jesus. That's not what we're talking about. Jesus grew, lived among us, walked as a man, facing every temptation we face, and yet never once sinned. Didn't sin in what he did, didn't sin in something he failed to do, didn't sin in his attitude of heart, in his thoughts, and yet in the midst of this, do you think for a moment the devil is after you more than he was after Jesus? Every kind of temptation we can imagine. Never did anything but the will of the Father. So when he died, he died as a sacrifice for us. In our place. Because you and I all, every single one of us, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But he didn't stay sealed in a cold, dark tomb. Glorious now. Behold Him arise. He is forever the King. Forever God incarnate. And our eternal sacrifice. I have wrestled with that particular carol for so long because I don't like to use songs that propagate false ideas in our minds. So even though the title and the first line have to do with the we three kings thing, let's let's set that aside. Let's set aside whatever things might cloud our vision and see the beauty of the content of the song that takes us back to the scriptures to be able to see who Jesus is. That said, let's take a look at the Scriptures themselves. So in Matthew 2, we'll just kind of walk through this as briefly as I can, knowing that if, if I don't cut this short, we'll be here forever. Even as it starts, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, so we know it's after He was born, this is when they, they begin. During the time of King Herod, Okay, so this is Herod the Great. This is before, you know, this is like probably 5 or 6 B.C. Herod the Great was not 
the king of the Jews, even though he was the king of the Jews. Seem a little confusing? He wasn't actually Jewish. He was sort of a, a half-breed. He was an Edomite, an Edomian, if you will. And he was placed, tolerated, installed on the throne as king of the Jews by Rome. He was sort of this vassal king under them because he was really good at keeping the peace. He had gone through some struggles. I don't want to spend a lot of time on Herod's history, but he was a, a very efficient and effective leader in the early parts of his rule. By the time we get toward the end, and we're nearing the end now, he had become, I don't have a better word than insane. He, he was so obsessed and consumed with maintaining power that he had countless people murdered, including one of his wives and two of his own sons. Because anything that was a threat, any rival to his glory, his power, had to be eliminated. That was the guy that's reigning at this time. Just to give you the setting. Now we see that these magi came from the east and we've got a couple of different areas there that we can really speculate about. I want to encourage you to kind of set aside the speculation. We, we like to get into all these areas where we don't have actual knowledge. So this We Three Kings idea, there's so much speculation about what the magi were. And if you watch, goodness gracious, if you watch the History Channel... I love so many things from the History Channel, but it's like every single time they touch anything to do with the Bible, they get really whacked about it, just go crazy and come up with all the potential heretical, outside-of-Scripture things that anybody ever believed, and then pretend that that's orthodoxy within the church and all Christians believe it. And it just drives me nuts. That's my, my criticism, so I'm going to get off my soapbox for just a second. Not knocking the History Channel as a whole, but we have to make sure that we are taking things as they actually are. And when there is an agenda, notice it. So, without any further digression, what, would, what do we know about these magi or magi? The Greek term is magoi, it's the plural of magos, which has been corrupted over the generations to to things like mage or magician or sorcerer. It gives a, a picture of who these magi would have been that is probably not very accurate. The magi were uh, probably best uh, seen as the traditional term we use, wise men. And so the reason that you see it in a lot of the modern translations as magi is because they don't really know how to translate it. There isn't really a good translation for it. So they just transliterate that Greek term as best they can. And it still confuses us because we've turned it into so many other things. When you, in the book of Acts, read of Simon Magus, uh, Simon the sorcerer, it kind of puts that term into that idea. So here's a Jewish man identifying with, with Gentile sorcery, as it would have been seen at the time. And it gets confusing for the rest of us. These wise men, these magi, would have been something like a royal vizier in, in many ways. You can think of uh, back when the Israelites were delivered from Egypt 
And Pharaoh had his wise men, his viziers, Janus and Jambres, as, we're, as we see in the New Testament. That role, that, that royal advisor, kind of filters down into that. And when we look at what happens in the book of Daniel, there's this group of people, the wise men, the, the magi, uh, John MacArthur refers to them as a tribe. I don't know if that's the best way, but who am I to question MacArthur? As he's, he, he emphasizes their role as kingmakers. Many scholars uh, see that, that, they are, that the Magi were kingmakers. Because of their elite status, this group were the ones who would appoint, or at the very least approve, the kings in the great kingdoms of Persia and related eastern kingdoms as they came down through the years. So these magi coming from the east, we get a lot of speculation about where they came from. We're not told, we're told from the east. In all likelihood, most of the scholarship seems to point to that, that Babylon, Babylonia, Persian uh, empire area, which at the time was still the nearest rival to the Roman empire, not not equivalent at this point, but the nearest rival. And so as these magi are coming from the east, you can get that picture in your mind that these are a royal class of what we might see today as scientists. They were wise men in that they sought science in, in, the, in what we would see as the Roman or Greek picture of science, a full knowledge of everything that they can know. They want to know it all. So they would study the stars. Later that developed into uh, an astronomy-astrology hybrid uh, that was uh, related to Zoroastrianism. I don't really know when that blended together in there. But what they sought to do was to take a pursuit of knowledge, a pursuit of truth, and apply it in life. So for them at that time, in the ancient cultures, and even through first century culture, you would see this pursuit of knowledge, not like we understand it today, where we see science and faith as completely different things in competition with one another, but rather science and faith went hand to hand, went hand in hand. Okay? Theology was part of the knowledge. As these wise men came from the East, if we take uh, the scholarship of MacArthur and, and uh, many historians seriously to see them as kingmakers, what a picture we get of these Gentile elites seeking truth with the role of recognizing and establishing kings. It fits with Matthew's purpose in the narrative. Matthew is writing his gospel for the express purpose of establishing Jesus as Israel's king, as the Messiah, the promised eternal king on the throne of David. He's writing for a primarily Jewish audience, and so as they are reading it, he's going to continually connect them with prophecies that are being fulfilled and continually connect, as he did in his genealogy in chapter 1, continually connect Jesus with the Davidic line. 
and the royal throne. With that picture in mind, it makes sense to understand these wise men as those who would identify the king. Now, again, we're, we're reaching a little bit, but I don't think we're reaching too far. We see what the text tells us. We don't want to add to it. We don't want to take away from it. But in understanding what the role of magi were, that is a pretty big deal. Now, these magi came from the east, and they came to Jerusalem. Now, it makes sense if you're looking for a king to go to the capital city. This is David's city. Bethlehem is the town of David, David's village, if you will. But Jerusalem is where David established his throne. Everything having to do with Jerusalem or Mount Zion in the Old Testament is speaking of the throne, the rule over Israel. Here we read that during this time when Herod is king, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And the sense we have here in the text is that they came basically asking around. Hey, we heard about this king. What do you know about this king? Hey, we're looking for this king. We saw a star and the people are stirred up. They have a king. And when these kingmakers come, these wise men, we don't know how many. It just It's a plural. So there's at least two. Many scholars say they would have brought a big contingent. That because they were a royal party coming, they would have brought with them a military contingent from their eastern nation to guide and protect and take care of them. And it would have been overwhelmingly intimidating. I don't know if that's going too far or not. But it seems logical that if you have a royal party coming to seek a king, that they're not coming alone. So the Magi are coming with someone to watch over them, to protect them. Someone to make sure that the trip goes well. If these are wise men, they're going to travel wisely, right? Makes sense. So when they show up, it's not just a couple of guys on a camel. There's no mention of camels here. Maybe that was how they traveled. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe they traveled by elephant. That's, and I'm not saying that facetiously. We don't know how they traveled. We know for sure they didn't all uh, pile into a bus or hop a train. They took the, the travel of the day along the trade routes of the day doing the normal things that you would do to travel the if it if it's the uh if it's they're coming from babylonia about 800 miles of traveling together in this group on foot or by whatever carrier animal pack animal they're riding there as they're traveling this is taking some time right Estimates I saw ranged from 40 days to four months. Who knows? We're not told. But we know that they're traveling a long distance. They're coming from a place outside of Israel. So these are a Gentile elite coming. And when they come, they're asking questions that are freaking people out. Notice in verse 3. 
When King Herod heard this, so they didn't go to Herod. They're not asking Herod. He hears it, right? When word gets back to him and he hears this thing that they're asking, he was greatly disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief, uh, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. So he's, he's picking up on something. We got foreigners showing up in some sort of force. However many there were, this plurality seems to indicate that, that there's a force that comes. And because this royal elite group is coming, and as we see later, they're bringing treasures, there's somebody going to be there to protect the treasures. It's not a safe travel. And everybody's freaked out. Herod gets wind of it. Remember, this is the same Herod that's killing off his own family because they're a threat to his reign. He will not tolerate any rivals to his glory. So the people are disturbed because they've got a pretty comfortable gig going on. Rome leaves them alone because Rome is happy with Herod. The Jews don't have any particular love for Herod one way or another except for he keeps the peace. But when Herod gets stirred up, people die. So if somebody's coming around asking about a new king, you can imagine why the hoi polloi would be worked up. Wait a minute. If you keep pushing buttons like this, King Herod's going to start lopping off heads. It's going to go poorly for us if you upset the status quo here. We need to just stay the course. Things are pretty good for us. Don't mess with the system. They're disturbed. They're disrupted. Herod's disrupted, and he calls together the wise men, so to speak, of Israel. And he brings in the people's chief priests, and he brings in the teachers of the law. One preacher I listened to <laughs> preaching this passage, I, I don't recall right offhand who it was, pointed out that this is a pretty good indicator that Herod did not regard the law of God. Because every Jew knew the Messiah was coming from Bethlehem. That's not something new. Notice, the, notice that they didn't have to do a lot of research with the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Later on, when the people are criticizing Jesus, they're saying, isn't he from Galilee? Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. Messiah comes from Bethlehem. Right? So as they're dealing with this, Herod reveals his own ignorance of the prophecies. Where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And I, I have to imagine, this is, this is my probably less than entirely sanctified imagination here, I have to imagine that these teachers and priests are thinking to themselves with a, with a not visible eye roll, because you don't want the king to see that, well, duh, Bethlehem? You can understand why the Magi would go to Jerusalem. But a good Jew would know you should be in Bethlehem. Herod doesn't know that. So he asks and they say, in Bethlehem in Judea. This is Micah 5.2. We memorized that verse last week. And we see Matthew cite it here. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you're by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then, 
after this, Herod called the Magi secretly. Now, it's interesting that we see secretly here, but we don't see secretly before. Everybody's disturbed. Herod's disturbed. So he asks questions. He's trying to find out what's going on. But he seems to want this part to be classified. right? He's trying to get some intel from these magi. Let them do the searching so that he can get information. But he doesn't want everybody to know about it. So, verse 7, Then Herod called the magi secretly, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. How long have you been searching this star? You're talking about this new star, this, this new cosmic phenomenon. When did this appear? And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now let's stop here for a second. We, we have speculation about the Magi themselves. We have speculation about where they might come from or how many there were and all those things. But there's a lot of speculation about the star. What kind of star is this? Is it a star? Is it a planet? Is it a comet? And, and I have to think none of those things act the way this is described. In Luke's account, what happens when the angel appears to the shepherd, to the shepherds? The glory of the Lord shone around them. When we think back to the Old Testament, we see the Shekinah glory, the manifest glory of God. Now, if I'm going to speculate, I want to speculate in God's favor. But I really don't want to speculate. I don't want to come up with a whole lot of things and say, well, this is what it is. I'm not going to tell you that the star was the glory of God in this picture. But I don't think you'd be too far off if you thought it. You see, a star doesn't move in the sky. A comet does. A planet's going to burn brightly. And, you know, I've heard folks talk about an alignment of the planets, that things came together in just the right way so that you get this bright phenomenon in the sky. But even if that happens, you don't see a beam of light shining down to a house even a city. Realistically, any of these cosmic events would not have distinguished Bethlehem from Jerusalem, let alone one house from another house. How does this happen? I don't know. What I do know is that God is involved bringing these people to the Christ child. So as I think of the glory of the Lord shining around these angels and the, the sky being lit up with these angels, is that what they saw? Maybe. We're not told. To them it was a star. And it was a star that moved. And it was a star that guided. And it was a star that brought them here. You know, there was a similar Shekinah glory sighting as the children of Israel left Egypt and God guided them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. 
That doesn't just happen in nature, by the way. You might have any number of different spontaneous combustion situations, but they don't lead you. And they don't lead you anywhere good. But when God is moving, however that manifest glory shows up, God is infallible. So they end up finding the baby. By the way, Spurgeon speaks of that star as a role model for us. The star does the job of guiding, shining, so that others find Christ. How that should be true of us. If we belong to Christ, we should be shining in such a way that when others follow us, they find Jesus. Continuing on, after he calls them and he sends them to Bethlehem and he says, go make this search so that I can worship him. You can imagine in your mind the mustache twirling so that I may worship him. <laughs> there's a, there's a, a, a lie in what he's saying. He wants to know where the baby is, but he doesn't want to worship him. He wants to kill him. Kind of a difference there. So when he says, go and find them and worship so that I can worship him, they don't seem to know that's what he's saying until they're warned in a dream. Verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. I don't quite know how to take that in any other way than for them to see that the star is different, which points me again toward this idea of God's glory being the star that they see. They've been watching the star the whole journey. It's not like they just saw the star. But when they saw the star, now they're overjoyed. Their joy is overflowing. Verse 11, on coming to the house, on coming to the house, not the stable, not the manger, they're coming to the house. And they saw the child with his mother Mary. And when they come to the house, Joseph and Mary have left this manger. It's not, they're not there that night. I would say it's logical to see this as the star appearing when he was born. And however long they've been journeying, that star has been guiding them. But that it began, logically, when the child was born. A little bit of a speculation, but I think it's a logical inference from what we're reading. And at some point, this is far enough along that Herod, a little later on, when he decides to kill all the babies, because he doesn't know which one is Jesus, and wants to kill them all, he does all the ones under two years old. So somewhere in a two-year window from when Jesus was born. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of growth. A lot of things have happened. They're not showing up in, in your manger scene, but here they come to the child with his mother Mary. And what do they do in verse 10? They bowed down and worshipped him. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. 
the verses that we saw in that song give us a picture, a not inaccurate picture of the role of who Jesus was. When these Gentile wise men come from a foreign kingdom to seek the king of the Jews, I don't know what they were looking for, and neither do you. Be careful when you read commentaries that tell you all of their thinking and motivation. We don't know. What we know is what we just read in the text. There are logical inferences that we can make, and then there are crazy leaps that we make. We don't know their names. That was made up centuries later and used in church tradition, and it makes for great storytelling. We don't know what their names were. We don't know how many there were, so we don't have three names. It also means we didn't have people find three wise men's skulls to serve as uh, points of worship. (laughs) No, just no. We know that they came seeking a king. We don't know if they knew anything about who this king was. If they came from Babylonia or from the capital of Babylon, if they are truly magi, and that seems logical because they're called magi, that that's what they mean, what Matthew means, placing them in Babylon, coming out of the history of Israel, of Judah's captivity, in Babylon, they would have known the teachings, the prophecies of Daniel, who was the prime minister, if you will, in Babylon. And among the highest of the high in the Magi group, they would have had the remnants of the scriptures left behind Perhaps they even had some Jewish descent themselves because we know that within those kingdoms some of the royals were born of Jewish blood. God's very strategic in His seemingly random moves. So as they come and they know Daniel's prophecies that a king would come that would shatter all other kingdoms and rule over all other kingdoms. Maybe they were looking for power initially to set this king up as the king over their eastern empire. It seems pretty clear, though, that what they're actually looking for is truth. They've studied the prophecies. They've studied the stars. They want to find truth. And as they're seeking this truth, All of the events guide them together to Jesus. Let's let's start talking through these points here. Notice this. Those who seek truth find the answer in Christ. Those who seek truth find the answer in Christ. What these wise men were looking for may or may not have been a baby from a carpenter from a carpenter's family in a sheep town. Seems like they weren't looking for that because they went to Jerusalem first. They were looking for someone royal. And when they find this royal baby, not in a palace, but in a house with his mother, it's a long trip, right? 
Raise your hand if you think they just got there, said hi, and turned around and went back. Right? That, we know that's not reality. Inevitably, they spent time in conversation because it would be extremely rude. Knock on the door. Hi, baby, gifts, bye. No, they're having conversations. Maybe Mary invited them in and, and fed them. Maybe they stayed at the house with them. Unlikely, but you know, as we're, as we're seeing this, they're engaging in conversation. What would you do when you meet this baby? Boy, I really thought we were going to find this kid in the palace. Hey, what's his name? What do, you, what do you call this baby? Tell us about how you came here instead of Jerusalem. And as they're working through all of the conversations, somewhere in this process, they determine that this baby isn't just a baby. He is, as we sang, God and King and sacrifice. And these powerful elites got on their faces and they bowed down before a baby and they worshipped him. They didn't worship Mary. They don't even really talk about Joseph. Dads get left out sometimes. They worshipped the baby. Because the baby wasn't just a baby. The angel said to call him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. The prophecy said he would be called Emmanuel, God with us, as Isaiah prophesied. And when they find this baby, somehow, some way, God connects with them so that they are changed. One way or another, those who seek truth find the answer in Christ. Notice this, those who seek stasis find offense in Christ. Those who seek stasis find offense in Christ. Now, I confess stasis was not the best choice to put in here, right? Some of you are like, what the heck are you talking about? Maisie, I know. You know we, so. what, what does that mean? Is that, is that some word for, it's a fancy way of saying status? Well, yes, in some ways. I, I wanted to say those who seek comfort, but I was afraid that you would take that the wrong way. God wants to comfort his people. We see that throughout the, the cry of the psalmist, comfort us, right? Isaiah calls out to the Lord, comfort your people. All the prophets cry out for this. But this idea of comfort, of being comfortable in our status quo, keeping things the same, don't upset the apple cart. Don't mess with what we've got going on here. Those who seek stasis find offense in Christ. In the same way that those magi who were seeking truth found Christ as the truth. Here we see the people and Herod greatly disturbed in verse 3. Why were they disturbed? Because the question of where's this newborn king upsets the apple cart. It throws a, a rock into the pond. There's going to be a ripple effect. The people are comfortable in their 
homeostasis, their, their tendency towards sameness. They want it to stay the same. They're comfortable in their religion. They're comfortable in their political setting. We don't really dig Herod that much, but he keeps the Romans off our backs. Everything is good. Just don't mess it up. Don't change anything. Very often you and I can be so comfortable in the faith we've taken on, comfortable in our religion, comfortable in our culture, that when things threaten to shake it up a little bit, it's offensive to us. This would be the theme we see already here, the theme of the life of Christ. As He came, He wrecked the stasis. Turn with me to John chapter 1. If you're in Matthew, you're going to go to the right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 1. John is writing for a different purpose. Matthew is writing to establish the reality of Christ as king. John is writing to establish the deity of Christ Chapter 1, starting with verse 1, he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, speaking of the Word, the Logos, because the Word here is Christ, He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Christ is Creator. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Now notice what he says in verse 11. He came to that which was his own. Speaking of Israel. He created everything, and the world didn't recognize Him. Now He comes specifically to God's chosen people, and they don't recognize Him. Not only do they not recognize Him, they don't care. They don't receive Him. They don't want to look for Him. He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, Emmanuel. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. As we, as we look at the people and Herod in verse 3, we see that those who seek stasis, sameness, the comfortable state, they find Christ offensive. The Jewish people knew the king was going to come from Bethlehem. The chief priests and the teachers of the law had this knowledge, but it took Gentiles from at least 800 miles away to come and say, where's the king? 
they answer the question, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Then what? We don't see anything else about them saying, hey, we want to find the Messiah. The Messiah. Christ is here. we got to go find him. Wouldn't that be the natural reaction if you've been waiting for centuries? You have the knowledge, but nothing changes inside. Because religion is much more comfortable than a relationship. If I've got a checklist of things I can do and feel like I'm good, right? What do I have to do to make sure that God is pleased with me? Check, got it, check, got it, check, got it. Most of the time, I check it, but I didn't actually get it, right? Because I fail all the time. And when Jesus shows up and he says a little later, we won't look there, but Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, you can jot that down. That's where we see the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says things like, you've heard don't murder, but I'm telling you, if, you've, if you're holding hatred in your heart, you're already a murderer. You've heard don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, if you're looking at someone with the intent of lust in your heart, you're already an adulterer inside. Now don't use that as a cop-out to file for divorce because somebody looked at somebody lustfully. That's not what he's talking about. But the reality of Jesus coming and saying, what you heard is one thing, let me tell you the reality of the thing, was offensive to anybody who thought they were good enough already. When you and I want things to stay the same, Christ will be offensive to us. Third point. Those who seek glory find a rival in Christ. Those who seek glory find a rival in Christ. Herod is seeking his own glory, his own power. All threats to his rule must be destroyed. But God says nobody ever comes before him. He is the king of all kings. And so when Jesus, as the Messiah, as the ruler over all rulers, the king of all kings, God of gods, when he shows up, Herod's not interested in worship. He's not interested in truth. If this is truth, I have to change it. I have to destroy it because it's a rival to my glory. You understand that anything that takes glory away from God is an idol? If you want to see how God handles idols, take a look through the Old Testament. It ends with destruction. Don't seek your own glory, your own power. Don't seek attention from others. When we spend too much time in the mirror checking our look, it's an indicator that our perspective is off. When we spend too much time worrying about our reputation, what are others going to think? Even in promoting our picture of morality, when we're worried more about what others think of us than what God thinks of us, our perspective is off and we are seeking glory, vain glory. That's pride. Pride kills. Herod, filled with pride, seeks to kill anything that might be a rival to his glory. You and I find that same reality in our own lives. Those who seek glory find a rival in Christ. 
Those who are in Christ are called to humility. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Make yourself last. Debase yourself. That is a teaching that we have thrown away in our day. We think we can be Christ followers and still maintain our self-esteem. We can still stand up and take all the accolades. But the only way for us to get into heaven is on our knees with empty hands. And if we are seeking Him, we cannot be seeking our own glory. Put others ahead of yourself. Put Christ ahead of others. Those who seek glory find a rival in Christ. Those who seek truth find the answer in Christ. Those who, uh, those who seek truth find the answer in Christ. Those who seek stasis find offense in Christ. Those who seek glory find a rival in Christ. But what we learn from these Gentile wise men is that those who seek God find life in Christ. Those who seek God find life in Christ. These wise men came seeking a king. Every indication here would be that they were seeking a king based on their own perspective of intellectual pursuit. They could have come and honored him with their gifts. They could have come and made a plea, hey, come be our king so that we can have power. We know that you're a powerful king, or will be, according to the prophecies. Let's, we'll give you the best education. Mary, let us, let us bring your kid, and we'll give him the best that our, that our fancy schooling has to offer. We'll pour out wealth. You don't have to live this carpenter's life anymore. They could have done all that. Instead, when seeking truth brought them to Christ, they fell on their faces and they bowed and worshipped this baby. Now, I don't, I don't want to be crass, but I do want to shatter a little bit of our, our sanitized picture here. If you've ever held a baby for very long, you know that babies have nothing about them worth worshipping, right? Jesus was a normal human baby. The old you know, song, No Crying He Makes. Crying for a baby is not sin. That's not an attitude thing. They're babies. It's what they do. Jesus cried as a baby. He cried as an adult, too. Jesus had dirty diapers. He drooled and he spit up like every other baby. And here they are in their royal garb, probably traveling garb, but they're, they're in their royal clothing. I don't like to get on my knee to look under my car when I got my clean jeans on, right? But they're getting down on their faces in their royal robes to worship a drooling baby. Because it's not about the baby. It's about who that baby is. When you and I seek truth and we find Christ and we set aside our own thing and God captures our heart. It's the only way that we seek God. It's when He captures our heart. Otherwise, we seek God with a small g. We seek God crafted in our own image rather than submitting ourselves to Him. 
But when he gets a hold of our heart, when our truth-seeking has led us to Christ, when we've set aside our pride, we've set aside our comfort, then the Spirit of God moving in us causes us to seek God. And when we seek God, Jesus said, all who come to me I will in no wise cast out. When we seek Him, we find life. What did we just read in John 1? In Him was life. The world rejected Him. His own chosen people rejected Him. Those who had the privilege. It's not about privilege or entitlement. It's about a heart surrendered to God. You can have everything right in your life. That's why there are so many uh, axioms about the, the bad preacher's kid, right? You can have every advantage in life. But if your heart isn't surrendered to God, eh, then you get, to, you get to the house and you found the answer in Christ. But it doesn't mean anything. Those who seek God find life in Christ. A humble and surrendered heart. I'm over. Let me close this. Matthew is writing to establish Christ as king for a mainly Jewish first century audience. But God himself breathed out the scriptures to establish Christ as king in your heart and mine. What you seek determines what you find. And what you do with what you find is a choice only you can make by God's grace. God's king will be recognized by all who earnestly seek truth. If you are earnestly seeking truth, you will find Christ. The question is, what will you do about it? When you find Christ, will you humble yourself enough to worship Him? And if you claim to worship Him now, will you worship Him with your lips or with your life? Today, may you and I seek real truth, not our own comfortable stasis or our own glory, attention, and influence. May we seek God Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. When we seek Him, we will find Him. And when we find Him, May we humbly lay our lives down in worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the knowledge that if we will seek truth, we will find Him. And if we will surrender our hearts, we'll find life in Him. Father, teach us in this Advent season, as we're celebrating Christmas, Teach us to behold the Savior, to see Jesus as He is, and to be transformed by that relationship. We pray this in His name. Amen.